WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Today on the show, we do an old interview of uh, Detroit Bikes Company. We also cover the MSU Caroline Emerald and Scrap Fest. All that's coming up, but first, here's your weekly Impact update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will be back in just a moment, but first, your weekly news update. Today, Iran has agreed to dismantle many of its nuclear structures in a historic compromise. Iran and six world powers came to the decision to lift sanctions on Iran, but restrictions on the nation's nuclear program are still in place. Iran's Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif believes this is a historic moment. He describes the compromise as a win-win solution, but not perfect. He says today is the start of a new chapter of hope. This morning, President Obama said in a televised address, this agreement was the best available option to yield Tehran from acquiring a nuclear bomb. The president also made it clear he promises to veto any attempt by Republican opponents to undermine it. Now, Michaela Harris with Obama's recent decision regarding past drug offenses. President Obama announced that he would be granting clemency to 46 prisoners that were convicted for nonviolent drug offenses. In a video released yesterday, the president stated that these men and women are not hardened criminals and that they received sentences that did not fit their crime. The 46 men and women, 14 of whom were serving life sentences, are scheduled to be released on November 10th. Most of the inmates were jailed for crack cocaine offenses, which once carried a sentence equivalent to someone caught with 100 times the same amount of powder cocaine. Obama wrote letters to each of the 46 prisoners to specify why this decision to shorten each of their sentences was made. You have demonstrated the potential to turn your life around, Obama wrote. I believe in your ability to prove the doubters wrong and change your life for the better. So good luck and Godspeed. Obama has provided clemency to nearly 90 prisoners for mostly drug-related incidents during his presidential terms. With your national news, I'm Michaela Harris. Next, we go to reporter Alyssa Richardson with a new book that has America reconsidering its past. Today, Pulitzer Prize winner author Harper Lee released her second book after 55 years. The book title, Ghost at a Watchman, is set 20 years after Lee's famous To Kill a Mockingbird and contains some of her same characters such as Scout and her father, Atticus Finch. The story opens with Scout, now 26 and known as Jean Louise, returning to her hometown in Alabama from New York. Originally a draft of Mockingbird, the book was discovered last year. However, book critic like NPR's Maureen Corrigan so the novel reads like a failed sequel. The book critic called Go Set a Watchman, a mess that makes us reconsider the masterpiece with the morally crippled Atticus and many dead patches in the story. Late last night, more than 2 million copies of the new novel arrived to bookstores around the world. For your entertainment news, I'm Alyssa Richardson. Lastly, Rachel Beard with the latest in local news. The up-and-coming Lansing Whole Foods store has been anticipated since early 2014, but is still seeing delays before open. The store was scheduled to open this summer, but has since been pushed back to 2016. 
The delays have been caused by a 9,000 square foot expansion the store decided to make after construction had already started. This expansion required approval from the Meridian Township Board, bringing their lot to a total of 45,000 square feet. This will be the seventh Whole Foods store in Michigan. With your local news, I'm Rachel Beard. This has been your weekly update. I've been your anchor, Audrey Matus, and Exposure starts now. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I am your host, Quinn Hoffman. To start off the show tonight, we go to an old interview from last year that we did with the president of the Detroit Bikes Company over the phone. I'm sitting down here with Zach Pashik, uh, the president of Detroit Bikes, a uh, bike company located in Detroit. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, so what what exactly is Detroit Bikes? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So we're a, a bike frame manufacturer, and what's significant or kind of a um, a big deal is that we have the capacity to double the country's output of bikes. So every year in the United States, 16 million bikes are sold, and of those 16 million, only 50,000 are made in the U.S., and usually those are built by custom hand builders, but uh, the factory that, that uh, Detroit Bikes just built uh, has the ability to make 50,000 bikes a year. So wow. We're sort of rebuilding an industry that's, uh, that hasn't been in this country for a long time. Wow. When, when, did, this, um, when did this company start? Mm, 2011. 2011. Okay, so it's relatively really new. Yeah, so it started in 2011, but we only started producing bikes a year ago. Oh, wow. Um, we had to do R and D and prototyping and find a space and build it out. There's also something um, a little bit different about it. Is that from what I've noticed, uh, you've only made one type of bike. Is that right? We have two types right now. Okay, so you added another. Um, but we did. Um, but yeah, it's minimal. I mean, we're sort of we're trying to play into a forward-thinking way of, of uh, approaching bicycles. So the bike industry right now is really interested in high-tech stuff and, you know, all this new stuff every year and, uh, you know, really expensive stuff. But what my goal is for this company is, is, is to uh, facilitate this new style of cycling where people aren't really so into their bikes so much as they are. It's just the idea of taking a bike around. They just want something easy and simple. So we make bikes that, uh, you know, it's not fitted to your exact size because it doesn't have to be. That's sort of a, that's a lie. People were told about bikes. Another lie that people were told about bikes was that you need a ton of gears. But you really don't. There's no need to have 21 gears on a bike. That's actually completely insane. Yeah. I mean, think of having 21 gears on your car. Why would you shift through 21 different, <laughs> different things? You know, cars have four Right. Or different uh, gears on them, and, and uh, that's about as much as you want to shift. It it seems like maybe uh maybe this is a misconception, but that the more gears you have, maybe the faster that you can go. Is there any truth to that? There's absolutely no truth to that. Yeah, it's a it's a total misconception. The the high gear of one on a three speed bike and the low gear of three on a three speed bike are the same as the high gear. On a 21 speed and the low gear on a 21 speed, the gear differential is is usually um, fairly similar. It's it's just an issue of how many times you want to switch between getting from the high to the low. So, yeah, there. I mean, another misconception you have about bikes is that they need to be super lightweight. You know, there's there's no there's no reason for you to need a carbon fiber bike. 
And, and, and these are things, I mean, when you're riding a bike around town, you don't need these super extreme um, features on your bike. But a lot of people think that when they get into um, when they get into a they go to a bike store and someone you know turns their nose up at them and convinces them that they need these these certain fancy features. So what we're trying to do with the bike that we build is is sort of open the door to new cyclists by making it as easy as possible and, and really making a bike that's all you really actually need for you know for basic daily use. Um, hearing hearing this story about how you make one or two types of, of bikes, but you kind of mass produce them, you make a lot of them. It reminds me of, um, you know, the early automobile industry, uh, maybe, what is it, the Model T, I believe, that was just mass produced and there was benefit to it, right, that you could get it for cheaper. Mm-hmm. Is that the same kind of uh, mentality that you're taking there, The that if you mass yeah. produce it, then you can get it to the, the, the uh, public cheaper? For sure. So that a lot of bike stores would say that uh, you know they wish they could sell American-made bikes, but they just can't because they're too expensive. So the goal was to show that that wasn't the case, and the way that we can get our costs low is by making um, a high volume of bikes. So it's still it's still higher. You know, the cost on the bike is higher than what you'd see at you know Costco or Walmart. We're, make, we're trying to make a quality bike, a bike that you're going to actually want to ride, and that's going to last you for a long time. But um, within that next tier of bikes, you know, we're on the more affordable side, and, and, and that's absolutely uh, in line with that idea of, of mass production. Another thing is these aren't just American bikes, right? These are your factories located in Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Um, well, well, one talking about the early automotive industry. Obviously, Detroit has a a lot of uh, history there. Is that is is there any reason to Detroit that you uh, is there is, is the reason one of the reasons that you may have chosen Detroit as a city is because of their automotive history? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, this bike is made by a car people. It's a it's a car person's bike, uh, which maybe sounds like a contradiction, but it doesn't have to be. Um, right now, they're in the sort of politics of cycling. There can be sort of a confrontational attitude between cars and, and cyclists, and vice versa. But that's not. It doesn't need to be the way that it is. You know, bikes are something that are a complement to your other ways of getting around. And this bike is made by made by people who who learned their skills by making cars. And uh, you know, the, the reason we can get a factory is because we're in a town where there are factories, and you know, there's a, a welding supply shop down the street. There are people who uh, have supply chain management degrees who are looking for jobs. <laughs> you know, so all, all of these things are, are are directed to the auto industry. And I think that that's kind of the, the most beautiful full circle thing about the company is that you know that it's it's coming from the auto industry. These are auto industry guys who are who are going to be part of building a new industry. Um, I know you mentioned that the frame was mass-produced in Detroit. Um, is the rest of the bike from Detroit? Um, what, what, what other parts of it are contributed to Detroit? So for the manufacturing part, it's the frame. But the frame is pretty complicated. There's a lot of different parts on the frame, and everything on the frame is made uh, by, by us, by hand, in, in the city. 
And we also make the chain guards and the racks. Uh, and over time, we'll add more pieces to that. So we'll end up making the fenders and we'll make the handlebars. Um, but then the other, some of the other pieces are just pieces that, uh, you know, I would need to build another factory or two to to make. And some of them are very complicated, like the hub on the bike. It's an internal, internally geared hub. And, I mean, it's just a very high-tech kind of thing, and it's, it's not something we could do right now. So we buy those hubs and we buy you know, things like the grips and the brakes um, from other factories. You mentioned earlier about you know Detroit and um, you know people looking for jobs, the the uh, supply manufacturers that are probably looking for jobs. It's not a secret that Detroit isn't doing all that well economically. Um, mm-hmm. So why choose Detroit to uh, start a company like this? Um. In part, for me, it's a personal thing. I just fell in love with the city when I came to see it, and that you know that's for a number of reasons. Um, part of it is its history and, and you know its struggle and the complications here, and and mostly it was the people, though. That, you know, everyone I've met in the city is just <laughs> just a very weird, uh, weird type of person, but a special uh, and and vibrant. You know, type of person. It's not. You know, I I don't know if I would meet these people if I were if I was in Connecticut. Maybe I would, but um, I, I suspect I would. Uh, you know, I just I love the people in, in this city. So, so there's partly a personal thing, and then and then in terms of the company, it's what we talked about earlier. You know, that there are factories here that are for sale for cheap. Um, there are, you know, welders. There are fabricators. There are machinists. There are there are used lathes that we can buy, so there's just kind of the infrastructure here, um, and because of because of the auto industry, um, oh. and, and just you know Detroit's um, uh, manufacturing kind of legacy, so that's around and it's available. And then the, the other thing is that the world is interested in Detroit. Um, it's this is a city that uh, you know music has come from that has touched people's hearts around the world. Um, it, you know, it was the arsenal of democracy. This was a city that, that, that manufactured uh, you know, the first mass-produced automobiles that changed the world. It was a city that has had a dramatic impact on, on, uh, on the world. And I think that as much as sometimes within the United States, people may be feel ashamed of Detroit, and especially people in Metro Detroit kind of have, you know, snubbed the city and, and, uh, and uh, you know, felt embarrassed of it or ashamed of it. It's a significant and important city, and, and people around the world see that. So making something here makes a lot of sense. You know, I think people want that. They, they want to have something that they own, that they bought, that comes out of this place and is made by these people. You said um, kind of uh, two statements that I kind of wholeheartedly agree with you in, but they kind of contradict each other at the same time. You said that, um, you know, at first that one of the appeals to the city is kind of its history and its hardships and what it's been through, and then that other people are very um, embarrassed of Detroit. You know, it's it's kind of shameful how, how hard it's fallen, and it's... Um, you know, there's kind of a paradox there because there's definitely some sort of charm to what it's been through, right? That 
I feel like a lot of people um, look to Detroit as the city that, you know, has been through the most. No other city can say they've been through that. Yeah, no, I think no other city in the United States. I mean, this is the largest city to declare bankruptcy. And I mean, I don't think there are that many cities in the U.S. with thousands of burnt down houses that are just sitting around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it has been through a lot. I, I don't know if that contradicts it, though. I, I mean, I, there are those. Those two things, I think, are both true. Uh, people, some people, especially people in Metro Detroit and the suburbs of Detroit, are, are ashamed of the city and embarrassed of it, and they say weird things about it. Race has a lot to do with that. Um, unfortunately, this is this is a uh, you know one of the most segregated cities in America, and and uh, despite great efforts, there is a lot of pressure, um, especially in the uh, in the outer suburbs. Uh, because of you know backward mentalities, um, but um, but then I, you know at the same time there's also of course there's there's pride uh, in the city. It's just, it's been it's been a city of innovators for a long time. It's been a city that's generated all kinds of interesting stuff. So that's where I think especially when you get out of you know Metro Detroit and st- well even the Midwest. You know, I don't think Chicago thinks all that highly of Detroit. But I think New York does. Yeah. Probably, you know, Los Angeles does. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are, there are other, as you kind of get further away, I think the, the interest grows in the city. The connection to it um, is still felt, you know, pretty strongly around the world. Um, have you ever noticed any other businesses, uh, growing businesses, new businesses popping up in Detroit? There are lots of companies. I think that the, the companies that have been most successful and have, gotten, you know, the widest recognition have been service-based. So for the last five years, it's made a lot of sense, and it still does. Um, but definitely for the last five years, opening a restaurant in town made a lot of sense. Opening a, you know, a yogurt stand. <laughs> Not that there is one, but uh, but those types of things. Just things that um, exist in other cities, things that people want to have, um, the places people want to go. The city was very underserved by, you know, basic kind of fun amenities for people. And uh, and so those those types of places have been, have you know, been huge. They've been very successful, and there's lots of them. There's lots of new stuff that's over in the last little while. I've heard uh, a couple news stories about uh, pop-up businesses um, or something along those lines. Uh, have you Have you heard of these? Hmm. Yeah, I actually met the woman who who started the first pop up. It's a Filipino Filipino lady in New York who who did a pop up restaurant. Um, a very cool lady. Uh, and so the pop up idea basically it's just a way to get yourself going without having to go through all the like legal and and uh, and other hurdles that you go through getting a physical space. So it allows you to say, hey, like I'm a I'm a decent cook. And I'm going to do a, I'm just going to like serve some food to people to see if this concept works. You do something called a pop-up by basically not having your own physical space, but just appearing in, in someone else's. So the, the way that the, the lady in New York did it was there was a restaurant that was only open at night. So she was able to convince them to let her go in and, and serve to get a lunch uh, for a week or something. 
And, uh, and so, yeah, th- those are happening in town. I think to some degree that happens because it's a trend. I think that people think the idea of a pop-up is really fun, and it is. You know, it is fun. Um, but uh, some of that is, I think, so I think sometimes some of the stuff happening in Detroit is like trying to figure out how to echo what what people think is happening in other cities. Um, so it's not necessarily just because of the need for space. I mean, Detroit's a pretty easy space to get, uh, mm-hmm. a pretty easy place to get a retail space. So I think in New York, pop-ups maybe made a little more actual sense, but maybe maybe not as much here, but they make sense here just because they're kind of on trend. Wow. So you den- definitely have seen some pop-ups around Detroit? Oh, yeah. I guess then, uh, just for a final question, uh, where do you where do you see Detroit in maybe ten years? Any big changes? That's a tough one. It, yeah, like it's it's a really good question. I mean, we're definitely on an upward trend. House prices are going up, um, but at the same time, I think population is still declining. So that said, uh, the city is definitely a more attractive place to live. Services are improving. Uh, the debt issue has been dealt with. I think in an amazing way. The multiple levels of government and you know people of different interests to get together and resolve our our bankruptcy uh, was a massive story. I mean, it's it should be talked about on the nightly news and and uh, you know hasn't been, but I think it was incredible what just happened here in the city. So it, you know it's moving up. That said, ten years goes by really fast. I mean, I, I maybe because I'm getting older, I don't think ten years is enough time. You know, I think we need we need seventy five years to see to see a real um, solid change in the city. So I think ten years from now it'll it'll be better than it is now. But um, I don't know exactly what can get done really that fast. All right, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, gladly. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact eighty nine FM. That was an interview with the president of Detroit Bikes that we did last year. Next up on the show, we go to Daniel Razel as he did a feature um, a couple months ago on the MSU Carolyn. Many sounds are familiar on Michigan State's campus, like the cattle roaring down the streets or the students walking around and chatting with friends. But perhaps none are more familiar than the bells that ring every quarter hour from just north of the Red Cedar. On a chilly Tuesday morning, I walked over to Beaumont Tower and waited outside of the massive wooden doors for Dr. Ray McCullen, our University Carolyn player. After opening the creaky wooden door and inviting me inside, I chatted with Dr. McCullen before we ascended the 73 steps to the top of the tower. As soon as the clock struck noon, Dr. McCullen sat down at the Carolyn and began pounding away at the instrument's 49 bells, ranging from 15 pounds all the way to 2.5 tons for his weekly half-hour recital. Dr. McCullen has been the university caroliner here at Michigan State since 1997, Yet he doesn't feel that all students are fully aware of their opportunity to climb the tower every Tuesday at noon. I'm not sure how many students actually get up into this area. And 
So I th it would be great if before everybody graduates, they could visit the tower and come upstairs and watch me play. And set, that's an experience that a lot of them are amazed at. They have no idea that somebody actually set, sits up here and plays the carillon. They think it's a computer. Dr. McCullen also teaches lessons for students who are interested in playing the carillon. And according to him, some students are beyond excited to have the opportunity to play a carillon here at our university. I teach several students. Some of my students are university students, and, and depending on how much background in music they have, some of them can advance fairly quickly so that they can play the carillon during the years that there are students here. As a matter of fact, I have a new student just started recently. She's from Ukraine, and she happens to be a nurse in town, but she always had a dream. This, she said this was on her bucket list to learn to play the carillon. So I said, well, fine, let's come and do it. And she's quite thrilled to be able to come and practice here. After we wrapped up our interview, Dr. McCullen gave a brief history on the 15th century instrument, but not without a quick joke. This art of playing the carillon and this art of the instrument, uh, we sometimes like to call it the original heavy metal music. Big bell, so this big half ton bell keeps ringing and ringing and ringing. You can play a little bell and the sound is gone. Mm. So. So when you play carillon music, um, you're not going to play a lot of really fast stuff in the bass. The fast stuff usually works best in the, in the hands up and towards the top of the, of the keyboard. But you can play melodies in the bass, and so sometimes I have pieces where I'm playing melodies. You can visit Dr. McCullen and experience one of his recitals at the top of Beaumont Tower every Tuesday from noon to 1230 here on Michigan State's campus. For Impact News, I'm Dan Rizal. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could... Uh, would you ever want to... Um, <coughs> I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Second oh, floor. I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No, don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. 
more variety than you'll hear on any other station. Listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Prime now back to Impact Exposure. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Coming up next, we sit, go to Audrey Matus, who sits down with M. Rule, the club focused on creating a culturally inclusive campus. So tonight, I sit down with two members from M. Rule. M. Rule is a multiracial unity living experience, and it is the Student Multicultural Club here at MSU that works for an inclusive campus. So with me today, I have two members. You guys introducing yourselves to our listeners? Uh, I'm Maggie. I'm graduating, actually, this this year. Um, and I have been a part of Emerald since my freshman year, uh, and I've been a student leader for these past two years. Hey, and my name is Helena. I am a senior graduating in December. Um, I've been part of Emerald for about a year and a half, and Maggie was actually one of the few people that inspired me to be a leader. Awesome. <laughs> so what does a typical Emerald meeting look like and consist of? Um, well, it's usually um, a time of, in, in the week, so it's usually on a Monday or Tuesday night um, at around 8.30, um, and there's one in each neighborhood, and we usually talk about topics that relate to us as young adults, as college students, um, and but it also varies a lot. We talk a lot about about human human rights issues you know social justice issues or just things that are fun and exciting you know also i would think um difficult conversations to have especially in a multicultural environment sometimes it's easier to have a conversation everyone's the same ethnicity but that's not definitely not the case with emerald so how do you guys go about having like constructive conversations that everyone is speaking and getting involved with one of the purposes of emerald is to promote controversy but do it in a way that is going to be productive and beneficial and so one of the ways that we do that is we have like a series of rules that help us keep on track and one of them is um, they're called m rules haha <laughs> creative right <laughs> um, one of them is uh, to step up step back so that's just take your turn and talk if you're if you if you feel like you have something to say but also be listening and and know when you know I've been talking a little bit too much and we want to hear different voices and then another one is to um, give it to the group and this is probably the hardest one to understand because it involves realizing that we're having a conversation as a group of people and the conversation that we're having we want it to evolve in a way that that we're building the controversy and we're also um, building you know understanding in in a group in a group dynamic so we're not we're not pointing fingers we're not um, you know trying to cause fights or have the conversation be between two people we were realizing that this is a group effort towards a greater understanding of whatever issue we're talking about and it's a beautiful thing to come together. It's just one thing to add, but, you know, it's a group of, you know, I don't know how many, but it's usually around 20 to 30 strangers that are coming together to talk about this. And, yes, it's a difficult job as leaders to, to you know, to explain to students, like, yeah, you have to give it to the group. You know, you have to, if you're speaking too much, maybe you should give another voice an opportunity to express themselves and such. But it's a beautiful thing. 
So student leaders, you guys are kind of facilitator to the discussion. Right. I mean, we're the thing about a student leader is like we're also learning. We're also students, just like it says. We're, it's not a classroom setting. So we we're also there to learn. We're just there to try and make sure that the conversation is moving smoothly. No one's getting their toes stepped on and that we're moving in the in a direction that makes sense for whatever conversation we're having. Perfect. And I'm curious, what made you guys want to get involved with Emerald? Well, I first started coming to Emerald, uh, I think it was spring or fall 2014. Fall 2013, excuse me. <laughs> um, and I just really enjoyed the people there. You know, it was such a great environment. It was, I felt very open and I felt safe at the same time, even though I didn't know these people that well, you know, on my first meeting. But I felt safe, and it's weird to feel that, you know, and, and to feel at home in a place where, you know, MSU is a huge campus, and it's hard to find your niche and such, but Emerald really helped me with that, and Emerald has helped me with a lot of things in life, too, so that's the reason why I wanted to go in, like, a further relationship, you can say, with Emerald and become a leader. What things would you be, if you could say more specifically, what mm -hmm. things has uh, Emerald helped you with? It has helped me become more aware of things. You know, sometimes we go on about life and we don't really realize, like, the small things, the little things. And Rumble kind of helped me with that. I didn't completely know the true story of Thanksgiving, to be honest with you. That's why it's such a <laughs> it's a big thing for me. And that was nice. Um, and just realizing how what's going on in other people's lives, you know. Sometimes we become so self-centered, and Emerald helped me with that to see oh, so these experiences happen to others, and I didn't know that. But now that I know, I know I'm going to treat people better. It's helped me become a better person in general. Mm -hmm. I'll let you, Maggie, I'll let you explain why you joined Emerald. I have another thing, though. Um, you mentioned about how you just felt safer. Mm -hmm. I know that one of your mission statements for Emerald is to help people transition, help students transition to MSU. So do you, how often do you guys get a lot of international students? I feel like Emerald was they're a safe place for them at least to get started into MSU's new setting. We do have um, some international students. And um, one thing that I think is hard is that Emerald is mostly focused upon conversation, which involves, you know, a medium of language. Um, and so we love to have international students. We love to have students from everywhere, really, and every walk of life. But um, one th another part of Emerald is community service and socials. And so... What our purpose in, in when we're creating a social we think about is this going to involve so much language that it's going to make it difficult for people to interact on other levels. So, for example, you don't need to have really strong communication skills to hang out in the community kitchens and cook food together and then eat it, you know, share share a bit of your culture through food. You don't need really strong language to enjoy a karaoke night or to go and help in a community garden and in those settings you can have one-on-one -on -one conversations that aren't as stressful as talking in this big group of, of students or you know even though we break down the groups you know it still can be intimidating so um but we want to try and reach people on multiple levels maggie could you explain um why you joined emerald when i was a freshman i was uh i was feeling a bit like something was missing, you know, and I, I was having a lot of like personal issues and personal struggles. But I visited Emerald um, because it was advertised to me when I was in James Madison uh, at, that it was, you know, a place where you could discuss and like meet new people. And I've always been kind of interested in in um, other cultures and, and meeting, 
you know, meeting people who are different from me and having those conversations about social justice. Because it's like you see something wrong around you and you just wonder, why is it like that? You know, why don't why aren't we talking about this? And, you know, there's those like those three things you should never talk about religion, politics and something else. But, you know, like sexuality or yeah, something. sexuality, you know, those those buttons, like hot trigger topics. Mm-hmm. But I was like, but I like to talk about those things. I want to have those kinds of conversations. So I ended up going to Emerald and I loved it. And but really, when Emerald really clicked for me is I went abroad to China for my sophomore year and I was gone the whole year. Jean, who's our, our supervisor, okay. she called me and asked me to be a student leader while I was in China. You know, she remembered me from the year before and asked me if that was something that I would like to do. And I said, yes, you know, yes. But when I came back from China, you have that reverse culture shock and you just feel like nobody understands you. Nobody gets you. I had to kind of start over. It was like I was a freshman again, you know, even though I was a junior. And But um, Emerald really, like, they took me in kind of. I felt like it was a family and, like, they wanted to hear my stories. They wanted to help me to reintegrate myself into, you know, American society. And so I really, I really appreciate that about Emerald, that they're kind of like a warm blanket, you know, even though you're discussing these difficult issues and and bringing light on these social these social justice um, problems, you also feel like this is a place where you're wanted. What was that integration process? I'm curious now. You <laughs> mentioned that they brought you back into American society. Is that kind of what you're saying after being gone yeah, for a while? Yeah, well, it's like I didn't know the popular culture. I didn't know what was going on in the news. I didn't really... I, I was really just away and I felt like I didn't have any friends from before because they had all you know I had changed majors other people had changed majors I wasn't in the same classes and I and I just felt like I couldn't describe my experience being away for so long um to anyone you know I I had like these separate worlds you know and Emerald helped me to bring those together because there's a bunch of people going through different things and and you can actually talk about it and people people want to hear like oh or 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 somebody's actually Chinese and they're like, oh my gosh, I am having the same experience. I'm abroad and it's really hard for me. And then when I go back home, it's really weird, you know. So, no, oh, um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And Helena, have you? Do you have a moment when you maybe had a specific struggle as far as transitioning, or just anything that Emerald kind of helped you talk about and understand and kind of like connect with other people that were also sharing this struggle? Um, yeah, there was a moment, I think, um, last year where I went to Brody's Emerald and I was talking about like the sexual objectification of women. And, you know, at that time I was in the vagina monologues and, you know, just seeing that, you know, my fellow team and, you know, the residents of Brody had this great, you know, um, passion to stop this objectification of women and they're working together and figuring out ways to, you know, stop it was pretty it was awesome just to see that. Yeah, awesome. I think it'd be great if like all freshmen could just go to Emerald. Attend. I just finished my freshman year, um, you know, in the spring. Um, and I think it'd been great just because like, it is a culture shock even for some people. For me, I was pretty like I was looking forward to this cultural shock, so it wasn't really a shock for me. I was just like, yes, like <laughs> look at all the different faces I see finally. And um, but for some people, that's like frightening for them, mm-hmm. and they're not used to that. They come from an area where they don't have a lot of minorities, or mm-hmm. vice versa. They're used to going to school. I was a lot of issues. I had friends that they had never been to a um, predominantly white school. Mm-hmm. And that was weird for them. They had a hard time finding their outlet, finding their friends. They were from California, and they were mostly with Hispanic people. But they joined Emerald. 
somehow I don't know. I feel like you guys are on every neighborhood, but I still feel like there's an apprehension of people joining a cultural club because they feel like they have to be some sort of, have to be a minority in order to succeed in a cultural club. Um, have you guys considered reaching out more to freshmen and making them feel like Emerald is perfect for them, no matter where they're from or their background? It's tough the first year, you know. It's almost like going from China, well, going, coming from the U.S. and going back to going to China and then coming back. It's a new world. It's a new life. MSU has its own culture, its own language, you know, things like that that people will have to get to used to and we're there for them. So I think this year we're trying to make a better impact on um, students' lives. I think that we... Definitely our main outreach is to freshmen because they're living on campus. And we want to encourage people who are off campus as well. But the purpose of Emerald is to build a, a community. So definitely we are. That's definitely what we want to do is reach out to freshmen and, and um, uh, reach out to people who and, and, and the name says multiracial. And, and I think when especially like white students see racial, they get like, oh, no, that's not me. I'm, I'm not racial. But. Yes, everyone is. Everyone has, you know, their preconceived race or what people think is their race when they look at them. So, um, it's a factor. Yeah, I mean, things, yeah. right. And and it's not our, our conversations have a lot to do with race, but they also have to do with every other subject that has to do with social justice, from environmental things to, um, you know, education, which and 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 all of these things tied to get tie together. You know, you can't you can't discuss you know, race without discussing uh, education, without discussing, um, you know, women's rights and and um, sexuality, because all of those things are combining to make the world the way, you know, that it is today. So mm -hmm. um, definitely it is a group for anybody. I'm sure that anybody can find a conversation that's going to, you know, really touch what they're interested in. So... Yeah, just one more question about Emerald here. I know this past school year we had a pretty like an up upheaval of social justice events. Yes. It's, it's becoming more apparent to youth in general. Um, how did you guys tackle some of those difficult issues that were coming up over the school year? Uh, yeah, so for example, when um, Chapel Hill uh, happened and, and the... Could um, you explain what Chapel Hill right. happened a little bit? So uh, there was um, a couple of Muslims who were... Um, shot supposedly there had been a parking spot that this guy they had been you know contested and there was kind of like an outpour an outcrying from the from the muslim community but i didn't really get a lot of news i, I don't think it got a lot it of did not. coverage you know mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't really know um we had a we had a, a meeting about islamophobia and talking about what kind of treatment are people practicing islam in our country given and we talked about for example in when they when they board a plane uh, and people had personal stories about how they were the ones that were pulled aside because they're wearing hijab or because they they look like they're from Southwest Asia. For that meeting, we um, we had kind of a collaboration because we invited a lot of students um, from all different backgrounds in, in the Islamic community. And uh, that was a great a great thing, I think, because it's something that you don't get to talk about. It's kind of like, oh, that's touchy, you know. That's that's religion. We don't we don't want to talk about that. But um, it's something that it's a discussion that has to be had, and especially with recent events and uh, you know wars and and so it's it's something that I think Emerald Emerald can shed some light on. Mm -hmm. 
So also when Detroit had their water crisis and they're still having their water crisis about, you know, um, shutting down the water for not paying bills and, and who's getting the water shut down, you know, is it companies or is it just people who are trying to make ends meet? So we talked about that. Is water a right, you know, and how can we kind of decide that someone doesn't deserve water? And that's something that you think about with developing nations, but you don't think like, oh, it's happening in my same state. So um, it really brings it local when you're talking about poverty and, you know, lack of water and lack of resources within your own, you know, within your own sphere of influence. So how do you bring that knowledge into affecting or improving life on campus? Have you ever written a letter to the administration or staged a protest or anything? I think most of the ways that we try to make a difference are through um, community service and through having conversations with people so that on an individual basis, we're moving toward a more cohesive understanding of our world. So um, the number one way that we try to do things is like, we'll talk about commu- like, like, we'll talk about food deserts, you know, areas in which people don't have food, but then we're going to go and help in a community garden. We're going to be working with like people in Lansing or people in Detroit who this is where they live, but they want to create a better a better way of living for themselves and their families. So we work on community gardens or we work with children on their literacy um, to try and make our urban communities a little bit stronger. Um, we also try to do collaborations with other groups um, so that we're having you know cross communication with uh, social justice groups. And we've even like talked to Greek life. We've talked to you know a lot of the um, LGBTQ um, caucuses on campus. Um, when we're talking about something that we think is relevant to them, we we like to have kind of collaborations and stuff mm-hmm. like that as well. So. Perfect. Next, I'd like to talk about MRUL is in connection with the ICA, the intercultural aid position. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a bit more to listeners? First of all, because I've known what intercultural aid is. Like I had one in my residential building at Snyder Phillips, but I didn't really understand what the role was. So maybe as you guys are both ICAs, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. So can you just explain what an ICA is and how that ties in with MRUL? Um, an ICA helps with the social, academic, and cultural transition for incoming freshmen. Um who are living on campus this year. So um, what we do is we try to give an opportunity for students to excel in school, but to excel in their social life as well. Um, Firstly, all of us have, you know, our floors that we're living on and um, that we're responsible for. So we go and we're going to knock on their doors and just see how they're, see how they're doing. You know, do they need, do they need um, to connect with any resources? Do they need to go to the writing center? Do they, are they having trouble making friends? Maybe we can invite them to Emerald or one of our one of our um, uh, social engagements or or to service, and so we're there just as a resource for them and also as a friend. You know, uh, I know that I've had conversations late into the night about when you know when people have, you know, issues that they want to talk about. Um, and obviously, we can't replace a counselor, but we're just a friend that's there living with them. Um, and then there's the two different positions. So one of them will be planning the service that we do um, in Lansing and Detroit. And they also plan cultural events. So that's going to different events on campus. So we've, we went to like the Black Power Rally or go to Latin Explosion. Um, we went to Satrang to, to see um, the Indian dance. Uh, you know, if there's any rallies or protests, I know a lot of our students also go there. And how are you a bit different from the RA position? 
I would say um, RAs are focused on safety and security, but our job is more to create a community on campus and make you feel like, okay, I'm not this one person in this huge sea of other people. Kind of give give people a life raft, so to speak. So um, to kind of, and, and, and like Helena was talking about, I think our biggest role is in promoting social awareness, not just with the students, but also with the RAs, you know, because we've had a lot more training on that. So we can help them out with that. And they can obviously help us out with the safety and security because we don't have, we're not like, um, you know, going in through the halls at night and making sure everything is good, you know. So so those jobs really work hand in hand. And I think the way that you convince someone that you're useful is like, for example, we have, you know, students that we go and see, you know, once a week and we say, hey, I'm still here. Hey, I'm still here, you know. And that kind of knocking on the door and being like, hey, how is school? How is, you know, um, how how is your social life going? Or, you know, do you... Do you need anything or do you want to talk? Do you want to come to my house for tea? Not my house, my dorm. You know, um, that kind of thing really lets students know that you're there. So that's, that's, I think, how we would differ from the RAs. Perfect. And another thing is that we go beyond the halls um, to create a community. You know, it's not like we're only staying in um, that one floor that we're assigned to or the floors that we're assigned to. Um, you know, by doing Emerald, by planning all these activities, we're involving a whole neighborhood and we try to help students realize that it's not just this hall that your life is consistent of, you know, because sometimes people do just get stuck in their hallmates and such. We're consistently trying to get them outside of their comfort zone, but not forcing them, but just giving them the opportunity to see there's more out there than the bubble. Mm-hmm. So just tuning in, we've been sitting here with two ladies from M Rule. We're also intercultural aides. We've been discussing that, and I thank you both for coming and joining me today. Thank you. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact eighty nine FM. I am your host Quinn Hoffman. Next up, uh, Impact reporter Audrey Matus investigates ScrapFest, an art festival focused on reusing scrap metal. ScrapFest is an art festival happening in Old Town this weekend, and it is an art festival that celebrates art, creativity, and resource reuse. And here to explain a bit more about what that means is Austin Ashley. He is the recently appointed executive director of Old Town's Commercial Association. So thank you for joining me today, Austin. Thank you for having me, Audrey. How is the job so far? It's been crazy, but I wouldn't imagine it any other way. Um, I started right in the middle of festival season. I started June 1st, and June 19th, I had my first festival. So it was crazy hopping right in, but I have the benefit of being involved with Old Town. I actually interned down there while I was a student at Michigan State, um, and I stayed involved with the community and stayed involved on committees. So I kind of knew the, the run of the land, just not in my new capacity. So it was very interesting to, to come up against that, but um, altogether it's been awesome. I, I love what I'm doing. I love the people I'm working with. I love the projects that I'm working on. It's crazy and it's a lot, mm. lot to handle to manage everything, but I love it. Perfect. And then could you explain a bit more to the listeners about what ScrapFest involves? Yeah, so ScrapFest, um, this is the seventh year of our ScrapFest festival, um, first time as its own standalone festival. Um, but it's an awesome way to get uh, Friedland Industries involved um, into our community. When you think of you know, an arts district or a shopping district, you don't usually think of a recycling center and scrap facility 
but this is one way in which they donate the scrap to us and they can get involved. And so how the festival kind of works, we have um, 17 teams and they have one hour to go into the scrapyard, collect up to 500 pounds of scrap, and then have two weeks to turn that scrap into a beautiful sculpture. Then we put the sculptures on display and we have judges come and judge them. Also, the attendees of the festival get to have their say in, in who gets people's choice. And then we auction the sculptures off as a fundraiser for the OTCA. Awesome. And what are some of these sculptures? What do they look like? Every year, it just astounds me what these artists come up with. Um, one of my favorites this year, although I'm not allowed to pick favorites, but if I were to have a favorite, it might be um, one that is kinetic. And the sculpture that we have, actually, if you turn the wheel, it's a big whale, and the whale swims. Um, we have an 8-foot uh, Spartan with an 11-foot spear. Um, just some beautiful craftsmanship on that. Um, it's actually a blacksmith. He took um, these giant bars, heated them up, and pounded them into shape, and the knees i i keep focusing on the knees you know they're the bee's knees they it, the way in which this artist really sculpted a lot of the joints just some really beautiful fabrication um there's we have several bugs this year uh, we have a giant 10 foot aluminum or polished steel lighthouse mm-hmm. um we have a dragon we have we have a fountain we have a light post we have a michigan table which is pretty cool um it's actually both peninsulas um the middle of the hand has a spot for a uh, picnic umbrella to go up in Mm -hmm. the hand can actually hold a bottle of wine for you and it's wine rack and then the upper peninsula is actually upper and raised because it's then the bar um so it's a really cool piece that would be great for anyone's garden um or maybe inside their house or their bar it's just really really cool Awesome. And so obviously people can come down to this festival and look at the art, but what other activities can people do when they come to the Scrap Fest? Yeah, so um, the festival is open to everyone. On Friday, it's going to be from uh, 6 until 10, and they're welcome to come out. We're going to have music, we're going to have food, uh, we're going to have some beverages, and um, like I said, it's open to the public. They can come enjoy that. Um, at 10 o'clock, we have the first installment of our Turner Street Outdoor Theater, which is actually held um, in the same parking lot. We have a giant inflatable screen, and we're playing Big Hero 6. So nice nice working together with robots and steel sculptures. Um, so that's going on on Friday. And then Saturday from noon to 11, um, same deal of viewing all the sculptures. Um, we have um, art vendors both days um, that are selling either upcycled, goods or sustainable practices in their art that they create. Um, We have family activities from noon to four on Saturday. We have the Broad Art Museum coming in doing some collage and architecture. We have local artist Kate Cosgrove. We have Micah Gallery also participating in that, as well as the Reach Studio Art Truck is coming out and um, everyone will be able to make their own little sculpture to take home with them. What are some upcoming events um, taking place in Old Town this summer or even in the fall? Yeah, so... um, As I mentioned, we have the Turner Street Outdoor Theater, and that starts this weekend, um, coinciding with Scrap Fest with Big Hero 6. Um, And then for the next four weeks, we'll have other movies in the the parking lot there at Lot 56. Um, So those are open to the public, and they are um, just a great chance for people to come out 
um, and enjoy the community. Cravings Popcorn is going to be open late, so you can get your popcorn before the movie. And that's going to be running for the next four weeks. Um, we do have Art Feast coming up on August 15th, which is a food truck rally, sidewalk sales, and art fair. Um, so we'll actually close down the street to have a nice little walking art fair. Um, and then even further out, if you're thinking and already starting to plan for October, we have Oktoberfest, um, German-themed festival um, in Old Town in our same parking lot, Lofty 6, at the corner of Turner and Grand River. And that's a weekend event and celebrating German heritage. And we have some polka bands and got some good food and good drink. And it's always a good time. You are the director here of Commercial Association of Old Town. And I feel like part of your goal is to revitalize the city. So as in your field, what would you say is essential to revitalize a city? Yeah, and revitalization is the perfect word and, and the one that has become a buzzword for us, um, not just in Old Town, but in all the Main Street communities across the state and across the country. And the thing that I view as most important to revitalization is people. We have people that have the ideas, that have the dreams, and they come together. And most importantly, they do them. They don't just say, I wish this happened, or I want to see this, or you know, wouldn't it be cool if we had our own little art competition sculpture event here in Old Town. And it's not just thinking about it, it's that they take that idea and they work together and as a community, we make it happen. Mm -hmm. And that's what revitalization is all about. And specifically to Old Town and our revitalization, 20 years ago, we had a 90% vacancy rate. We had you know absent landlords, we had a lot of crime. And now we're flourishing. We're over 90% occupied. Um, we have tons of businesses that have been there for years, mm -hmm. years and years and years, both boutiques and creative firms and art galleries, um, just wonderful shops. And, you know, it's all because people have that dream and, and have that gumption to make it happen. Mm -hmm. They're making Scrap Fest happen. Making so, Scrap Fest happen. For one last time, can you just say like the times and um, location for Scrap Fest this Absolutely. weekend? Um, well, if you can't remember, if you're not writing it down quick enough, you can always go to oldtownscrapfest.org. Um, we also do have a event page up on our Facebook. Um, so facebook.com slash I love old town. But um, Scrap Fest is held this weekend, July 17th and 18th in Lot 56, which is at the corner of Turner and Grand River in Old Town, which is just north of downtown, just west of, of MSU's campus. And from Friday, it is from 6 to 10 with the Turner Street Outdoor Theater happening at dark. And then on Saturday from noon until 11 with our live auction taking place at 7 p.m. and our family activities um, from noon until four and all of that is open to the public for everyone to come enjoy if you're listening we've been talking about the scrap fest happening this weekend with austin ashley the director of old town commercial association so thank you for joining me today austin thank you for having me audrey you have been listening to exposure on the impact 89 fm that's going to do it for our show tonight we'd like to give a special thanks to our station manager sammy leonardo our general manager, Ed Glazer, our assistant news director, Audrey Matus, and our other assistant news director, Daniel Rezel. Uh, you can find this episode as well as all other episodes of Exposure podcasted on our website at impact89fm.org. It's under talk. You've been listening to Exposure, and I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure.